Well, good morning. You know, as we were singing that, that song, I was thinking of John 3, 17. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn it, but that the world through him might be saved. The God of heaven and his son is a rescuer, a ransomer, a redeemer. And then I thought of Jesus' words in John 10. I come that you might have life and that you might have it more abundantly. The Savior we worship, the God that we serve, the one whose honor we have the privilege of proclaiming is a rescuer and a life giver. And if you believe that, would you say amen? The purpose of God in salvation is to make your life what otherwise it could not be. To rescue you from death and destruction and to provide and gift you with his life, the life of God, life eternal, life that is truly life, and to allow you to live life the way he prescribes it and to enable you to experience life at its fullest and richest. This morning's Life on Life message is a message that involves biblical sexuality. Today and Wednesday, we will take up the subject of biblical sexuality. Life on Life, and maybe for me at least, my perspective is as a pastor. What I would want you to know after many, many years of ministry, 27 as a pastor in a local church, dealing with a Christian high school, dealing with a congregation over many years, this is what I would want you to know, that I have come to believe that most Christians, for some reason, don't get to know. They don't understand these perspectives. Life on life, biblical sexuality, two words I want to emphasize today, the word intimacy and the word nobility. From a heterosexual standpoint, those are the two dominant perspectives that I'd like to plant in your heart today as it relates to how God made us and how God wants us to live for his rightful glory and for our greatest good, intimacy and nobility. Take your Bible, join me please in Genesis chapter 1. We're going to the book of origins. We're going to consider the designer and the creator. The starting point is God. One theologian says the crowd is untruth. The crowd is untruth. The pursuit of truth, beauty, excellence, whether in art, science, and spiritual growth has rarely taken its cue from John Q. Public or Mr. and Mrs. Average. The Polish scientist Copernicus said, I never wanted to please the people. What the people want, I ignore, and what I know the people do not realize. Summarize, those men are saying that the culture is not the place, the mass of humanity is not the place to find definition regarding sexuality intimacy and nobility. The crowd is not going to communicate anything other than a hodgepodge of disparate messages 
that do not align with what is true. Nobel Prize Irish poet W.B. Yeats in The Second Coming wrote this verse, and I want to begin with it today because I think it characterized contextually kind of what we're up against and the realities that represent our culture. Hear these words, W.B. Yeats. Turning and turning in the winding spiral, the falcon cannot hear the falconer. Things fall apart. The center cannot hold. Mere anarchy is loosed upon the world. The blood-dimmed tide is loosed, and the ceremony of innocence is drowned. The best lose all conviction, and the worst are full of passionate intensity. End quote. The falconer. The falcon cannot hear the falconer. Things fall apart. The center cannot hold. The best lose all conviction and the worst are full of passionate intensity. I believe that penetrating verse is an appropriate and compelling commentary on our culture. And this morning I want to establish your ability as a creation of God to hear the voice of the falconer, and as you spiral upward, that you might ascend to the place that God has created you to fly and to experience, that you might have convictions, non-negotiable convictions that will govern you, protect you, and promote God's best for you, and that the passions, they'll be maximized, not perverted. How God made us and how he wants to live for his rightful glory and for our greatest good. The starting point is God. Genesis chapter 1, day 6, verse 26. What did God design? What did the creator make and why did he design it and make it? Day 6, the end of the creative Week, God said, let us make man in our image according to our likeness and let them rule over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the sky and over the cattle and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. And God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him, male and female, he created them. And God blessed them, and God said to them, Be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth, and subdue it. Rule over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the sky, and over every living thing that moves on the earth. What did God design, and why did he design it? Let's begin by first declaring that God designed man and woman, who with and by their uniqueness, they are designed different, male and female, and they are to be different. And by this uniqueness, they would reflect God's glorious image. He designed the man and the woman to reflect his glory and his nature. And he designed that by their deepest union, spirit, body, and soul, in marriage, 
they would not only multiply, procreate, fill the earth with those who would also be designed to reflect his glory and nature, but further, in marriage, they would reflect God's, in Christ, glorious union, covenant union with his bride, the church. God designed man, man and woman, as a unit to reflect his glory, his complementary glory, male and female, united together in marriage for the purpose of maximizing the expression of his declared image and further to communicate the unrivaled covenant glorious union that would emerge between Jesus Christ and his church. Now look over, if you would, to chapter 2, verse 24. Now you know chapter 1 as all six days of creation. The seventh day was a rest day where God would enjoy the glory of what he had created. Chapter 2 is kind of a, a narrowing of scope, focusing on the highlight apex of his creation, man and woman. And then in verse 24, we read these words as it relates to biblical sexuality. Because my second question is, what did God design human sexual activity for? He designed the sexes to reflect his glory. He designed the unity of male and female in unique and distinct difference to reveal that glory. And in marriage union, they were designed to communicate the greatest covenant union of all, Christ and his church. But there's another purpose for sexuality, and that word is intimacy. Look at verse 24. This is the marriage verse. This is the Magna Carta of marriage, verse 24, Genesis chapter 2. For this cause, a man shall leave his father and mother and shall cleave to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. Now, this is four times used in the Bible, one time here in the Old Testament. This is the Magna Carta constitution of marriage. This is the union man and woman in covenant relationship that is to mirror the mystery that is Christ in the church. This is the union that is to be the most compelling expression of God's glory on earth in humanity, male and female united in covenant love. And this union is to be expressed, verse 24, the two shall become one flesh which is undeniably an expression of physical intimacy, physical union. So verse 24, in the context of marriage, involves sexual activity for the purpose of expressing something. And what I'd like to do this morning is to set the stage of understanding biblically that will help you understand God's design for biblical sexuality. Let's go back to verse 18, and I want you to notice the first three words of verse 24, which are, for this cause. Because our understanding, yours and mine, regarding men and women, husbands and wives, male and female, 
as it relates to physical intimacy has everything to do for the cause. And marriage includes the expression of that intimacy for what cause? I will argue that most people don't understand the most important passage in the Bible on heterosexual male-female sexuality. These are the verses that define God's view of noble and appropriate intimate sexuality. All right, here's the question. For what cause? Why did God institute marriage and the ultimate expression of that love covenant? Verse 18, you have to ask yourself, what's the issue in this paragraph? It begins in verse 18, after God created, verse 18, the man, then the Lord God said, it is not good for the man to be alone. I will make him a helper suitable for him. And out of the ground, the Lord God formed every beast of the field, every bird of the sky, and he brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called a living creature, that was its name. And the man gave names to the cattle and to the birds of the sky and every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not found a helper suitable for him. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man, and he slept. And he took one of his ribs and closed up the flesh at that place. And the Lord God fashioned into a woman the rib which he had taken from the man. And he brought her to the man. And the man said, this is now bone of my bones, flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man for this cause. Now here's my question. For what cause? Why does marriage exist and why does the two becoming one flesh involve that existence? This is the reason marriage exists. Marriage exists not only to bring glory to God by revealing his nature and glory, but to satisfy and fulfill a need that is designed into your humanity. Verse 18, marriage is designed to solve a problem. God created everything and called it good, and then he said there's something here that is not good, and that is that man should be alone. And the word alone in the Hebrew language means to be isolated, to be relationally isolated. This word is only used three times in the Old Testament. One, it has to do in Psalm 102, verse 7, where David says, or the psalmist says, I watch like a sparrow alone on the housetop, all by myself. Isolated. It's used of someone with an infectious disease in Leviticus, and he's told to be outside of the camp all alone. No communion, no companionship, no community, isolated. Now you have to consider this. What do you mean, Adam? You're alone. In what sense are you alone? God's there, the animals are there. In what sense are you alone? In the sense that you have no one counterpart suitable to you. God is too high. It's not like he's not relationally sufficient. The animal world, though, without sin and without the, uh, the fall and all of the consequences of it, as good as the animal world is and as wonderful as your faithful companion spot may be, you are alone. God's too high the natural world too low, you're alone in the sense that you don't have a counterpart, someone that fits you. 
So what God says here, verse 18, I will do two things, two verbs. I will make him a helper. That means practical partner. It means someone who makes up that which is lacking. It's used where Jethro talks to Moses when Moses in Exodus 18 is judging all of the people. And Moses hears from his father-in-law, hey, you can't do this. There's too many of them. There's too, ju- too many judgments to make. Appoint for yourselves helpers. Appoint for yourself somebody who will practically support the mission that you've been entrusted with. You can't do it. So God says, Adam, man, what you need is a helper, a practical partner, somebody who makes up that which is lacking. Let me just pause here and say this to you, the men. God has built you for something. He has designed you, created you, uniquely gifted you, entrusted, if you're saved, supernatural capacity, spiritual gifts. He's given you personality and talent, and he's commissioned you for a purpose. And you cannot fulfill that purpose alone. And we know that because God who knows everything and who diagnoses everything perfectly says, I'm going to make what you need, otherwise you're alone and inadequate. I'm going to make for you a practical partner. And ladies, what I would say to you is, by design, I don't have to know you. I know by design you are built to help support the mission The purpose and the design that God has built into a man if God has purposed for you to be married. Men, you need help to accomplish the mission of God. You can't do it alone. Women, you were designed to help some man accomplish that. You're essential to it or God wouldn't have created you for it. One of the biggest things I see in couples I coach periodically is this mindset that I don't need her. Or she's not cardinal to this pursuit and passion and purpose of life I'm engaged with. She is absolutely essential. So if you want to know something about what you need, men, is a practical supporter. And this is not a glorified assistant. This is not somebody who does the laundry, does the wash. Um, This is not somebody who just does stuff to support the home. This is a practical partner. It has nothing to do with rank or station. David said, I look up at the hills from whence cometh my help, same word, my help cometh from the Lord. So it's not like this is a lesser. God is the helper in that case. It has nothing to do with rank or station. She's an underling. She's a glorified assistant. She's, a, she's an add-on component. It's all about me, and she's here to support me. No, it's a combination, male and female, husband and wife, man and woman, whereby the woman is to make up practically what the man lacks in terms of the calling and mission of God. Number two, the second word, suitable. What does God make? He makes a helper, practical partner. And the word suitable literally means counterpart, someone who fits. It's used of puzzles. It's used of broken pottery. It's used of pieces that fit together. I'm going to make, Adam, for you a piece that fits you, a piece that's not like you, a piece that's different than you, that complements you. It's equal in value. This piece is equal in quality. This piece is a complement. It's not another you. It's not another man. It's a suitable helper woman who complements you. 
In the book of Proverbs, this flavor of suitable is translated with the concept of intimate friend, a companion. That's why Malachi chapter 2, Proverbs chapter 2, calls a wife, a woman in marriage with her husband, the companion of his youth, the intimate friend, the soulish connector. There's a very real sense, biblical sexuality, in which men and women are designed to go together like this, not only in physical oneness, but soulish oneness. Your aloneness issue is not a bunch of buddies, a fishing boat, or a hunting truck. What did God create to solve our aloneness problem? Not a bunch of guys coming over, satellite dish tuned to ESPN and an 80-inch screen. Not that. Would you agree with me that the king of everything could have created anything? Wouldn't you agree that he knew exactly what was needed to solve the aloneness problem? And with perfect diagnostic capacity, infinite resource, ability, and material... Wouldn't you agree with me that if this is a true record of the creation of God, the origin of all things, that the one who can do anything would have picked the best thing, and the best thing was to provide one person, a woman, he called helper, practical partner, intimate companion, someone who fits. That's what is needed out of all of the options in order to solve the aloneness problem. If you want to understand biblical sexuality, you have to understand that they are different, male and female. They are different for a reason. They are not only different to reveal God's glorious nature and complement, they are also designed to fit together in intimacy to solve the aloneness problem. Verse 19, I always found this interesting. Look at what happens next after God says, I'm going to fix this. And I'm going to fix this aloneness problem by creating a helper suitable. Verse 19, and out of the ground the Lord God formed every beast of the field, every bird of the sky, brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called a living creature, that was its name. Hey, I have a question for you. Why do we go from man's alone, I'm going to fix it, to the naming of the animal? Before God creates the solution, we have this, let's name the animals exercise. I want to suggest two things. Number one, clearly to communicate that Adam is the co-regent of the dominion of the earth. He has authority. He gives the names. God entrusts him that capacity. But I think there's another reason. Who knew there was a problem in verse 18? God did. Who knows there's a problem at the end of verse 20? Adam does. Look at what it says, verse 20. And the man gave names to all the cattle, to the birds of the sky, to every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not found a helper suitable for him. I think what God was doing in the naming exercise was not only communicating Adam's station, but Adam's need to Adam. I think when Adam got done naming all the animals... He had a very deep 
deep-rooted conviction, which is, I don't have anything like me. I need something this world doesn't have, even in its perfection, even without sin. I need something that God does not intend to provide, and nothing in the world other than what God will provide will supply. I love to tell every couple I have the honor of marrying, I say to the man, and I want to say to you, when you look at the girl God gives to you, you are looking at a one of a kind. Nothing in this world can replace her. There's nothing that can supply what she supplies. There's no created being. There's no created thing. There's no created group that can supply what essentially you need in your male humanity, and that is a complement female, a helper suitable for you, and there's nothing in the world that'll do that but her. And I always say, therefore, take care of her and treat her as that rare, that precious, and that without peer. So, verse 21, God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man, and he slept, and he took one of his ribs, and I want you to notice what he took and what he did with it, very valuable piece of man's anatomy, he closed up the flesh, thoracic rib, most of the commentators will say, somewhere in this region, and closed up the flesh at that place. Now, I'm reading from the New American Standard, and I love this translation as it relates to verse 22 because it highlights something that's not obvious in other translations. Verse 22, and the Lord God fashioned, not made, fashioned into a woman the rib which he had taken from the man and brought her to the man. Now, I want to highlight just a couple of things about sexuality, male and female, God's provision. This word, fashioned, means to custom build. Verse 7 of chapter 2 says the Lord God formed man of the dust. That's a shaping word. It's a utilitarian word. He shaped it together. It's used of making mud pies. Guys, you've been shaped like a mud pie. But ladies, listen to this about you. In your humanity as a woman... You were fashioned. This is a word used of God custom building the universe. This is a word that Amos 9 says God fashioned or built his lofty palace in the heavens. This is a word that Solomon uses in 2 Chronicles 2 where he says, I'm going to fashion a house for the Lord. And then he calls in chapter 2, 2 Chronicles, skilled craftsmen. This is the difference between the suit off the rack and a custom suit. This is the difference between art and form. This is not just shaped for utility. Ladies, God built you custom. He fashioned you. He custom designed you. This is not the spec house on the blocks in Southern California where they all look alike. Every five, they rotate. This is unique, one-of-a-kind, custom-built, For a man, if God ordains you to be married, you're unique and one of a kind, fashioned and custom built. And God was proud of what he had created, not only where he got the material, but what he did with it, fashioned it, verse 22, and he brought her to the man. The word brought means to unveil. It's like an artist at an art show where they unveil the work of art at the gallery that they're revealing. 
It's used of God unveiling the universe, putting it on display. It's when the father walks the bride down the aisle, my favorite moment in a wedding. That, that grand pomp and circumstance, you know, the music gets louder, the mother stands, everybody stands. There's this moment where the, the woman is being presented to the man. That's representative of this moment. The father of the bride or whoever the man is that walks her down the aisle is representing God in this moment. He's walking her to a man. He's presenting her in all of her beauty. It's the unveiling of a work of art, one of a kind. God created her. He created you with unrivaled beauty and uniqueness. He created you in unrivaled beauty and uniqueness for a man who would receive you as his covenant partner to make up what he lacks and to be an intimate companion with him for life. And not only was God proud, man was pleased, verse 23, and the man said, and if you've heard this before, you know it's true. The Hebrew emphatically, the word now goes first. This is now bone of my bones, flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. The way it would sound is I've named all the animals. I looked at all the options. I've come up empty. And now, now we're talking. I agree with God who's proudly presenting his custom-built solution, the woman, to the man. And then watch this. She shall be called Isha, woman, because she was taken out of Ish. Adam gives Eve his name, which is why a woman gets the man's name at a wedding. The reason she gets his name is because Adam gave her his name. I want her to be identified with me. She's with me. She gets my name because God made her for me. Now we're talking. This is who I want. This is what I need. I see it. I get it. I want it. And I want her to be identified with it. If you understand, would you say amen? This is a big reaction. I went to Pete and Lauren's wedding on Friday night. And uh, as Lauren got to the, the bottom of the aisle, the steps at the amphitheater, I, I don't know how anybody could miss this, but Pete, the funny guy, had tears rolling down his face, crying like a baby. And, and that was his version of now we're talking. I, I, I love this. At the end of the ceremony, it is, it is my pleasure, said Pastor Haig, to present to you for the very first time, Mr. and Mrs. Pete Vargas. Lauren took on a name that was given to her out of recognition that what God had given to him. Marriage in this section is all about solving an aloneness problem. And that's why I want you to feel and see as we get to verse 24, for this cause. What cause? Solve the aloneness problem. Hold it. I thought the aloneness problem was solved. We had a guy who was alone. We now have a guy who's not alone. We got a guy and a girl 
custom-made, presented by God, God's proud, man's happy for this cause. This is what you need to know about biblical sexuality. It's a two-part solution. It's the right person in the right place. Biblical sexuality and God's intention for man and woman, not just to reveal his glory, but to experience intimacy, the ultimate solving of the aloneness problem, is found in and only through the right person in the right place. And the right place is the marriage place. Living together does not accomplish this. Most of our culture now doesn't get married. They live together if or before they get married, as if there's some kind of trial run to see if this will work. The problem with that logic by design biblically is it is half of the solution. There is no intimacy without trust, and there is no trust without a biblical marriage. Marriage is all about trust. It's a covenant. It's got vows. It's not a contract. It's an if you don't, I still will. It's got witnesses. It's got vows. It's got promises because it is a commitment which says, even if you don't, I will. And in biblical Christianity and in biblical sexuality and in biblical physical intimacy, it is only fulfilled when a man and a woman, the right people, male and female, are put in the right place, a biblical covenant called marriage. And if there is no marriage, there's no solution that involves physical intimacy. Because marriage in this union is designed to solve the soulish aloneness problem, to defeat it. And the way it defeats it is through soulish oneness in intimate union in a covenant of trust. Here's the big idea for this morning and the time that I have with you today. Biblical sexual activity, biblical physical intimacy is designed to express and experience the oneness and intimacy which you were built with and God provided for in the creation event. Marriage is required for it. Marriage is the only context able to achieve it. Marriage alone is God's given, the God-given sanctuary for physical intimacy. It alone is the sacred and safe arena for man's purest and fullest expression. It alone is the place where you can experience the ultimate in human love. It alone is the place where you can experience true, soulish intimacy. Marriage is required for biblical sexuality because by the designer's plan, it is essential, not optional. Marriage involves three things. A covenant of trust involving leaving, three Hebrew verbs, leaving, means to transfer your authority from a previous authority. Notice what it says, verse 24. Leave your father and mother. What are father and mother? They're authorities. You leave that authority. You forsake it, literally. 
Not because you don't honor your parents, you just recognize that when you get married, if you're a wife, your head is your husband. If you're a husband, your head is Christ. You have a new authority. And you're pursuing somebody else's affirmation and approval. Children seek their parents' smile. They look in emotional dependence upon their parents. They may not get that affirmation, but they long for it. And when you get married, you transfer the pursuit of approval and affirmation from your, your most desired outlet, parents, to a new outlet, a new origin, a husband or a wife. You leave, and that means you establish a new relationship that provides a transfer of leadership and emotional dependence. This is not about proximity. It's not about moving out of the tent, moving out of the house, moving across town. Now listen, if you might have to move across something in order to accomplish this. Sometimes leaving and distance are essential for this, but when you have a leave relationship, you have established what I'm calling the trust of leadership, the trust of priority. The word cleave, how many of you have used the word cleave lately? Yeah, me neither. The only time you use this word is when you read this passage. What does cleave mean? The word cleave actually means the opposite of what you think. Meat cleaver, you know, you cut things apart. The biblical word cleave, debak, means to, to glue something together, to solder joints, to, to put skin together and glue it in place. Literally, if you were going to get married, and this was the literal cleave principle, there would be some kind of human crazy glue, and we would Siamese you at the front, and you would leave connected. That's the word cleave. Turn over with me to Joshua chapter 23, and I want to establish that it is, and you understand, it's not literal, it is figurative. It has a relational meaning. And I want to plant a seed of conviction in your heart because there is no marriage intimacy without a leave and without a cleave. And the expression of the leave and cleave is the two becoming one. So the expression of oneness is the outgrowth of leaving and cleaving. Now leave, or the word cleave, is one of God's favorite words relationally for Israel. It is used multiple times in the book of Deuteronomy where God says to his people, cleave to me, hold fast to me. Joshua 23 is one of the places where the word gets used in I think some very vivid ways. Verse 6 Joshua 23, this is Joshua talking to Israel. He's going to be God talking to his people through his spokesman, Joshua. And he says in verse 6, be very firm. This is before Joshua passes off the scene. These are the requirements to enjoy the land of plenty. Be very firm then to keep and to do all that is written in the book of the law of Moses so that you may not turn aside from it to the right hand or to the left in order that you may not associate with these nations. Now watch these words. These which remain among you, or mention the name of their gods, or make anyone swear by them, or serve them, or bow down to them. Verse 8, but you are to cling to the Lord your God as you have done to this day. Here's a question. What word is our word cleave? It's in verse 8. It's the word cling in my translation. Your Bible may say hold fast. Verse 8 says you are to cling to the Lord. You are to cleave to the Lord. What's the first word in verse 8? But. But is an adversative conjunction which means on the other hand. I want you to do something different than what verse 7 says. 
I want you to cling to me. I don't want you to do what verse 7 talks about. Well, what is verse 7 about? Verse 7 is about nation, pagan nations, which have pagan gods. What are pagan gods to our real God? A rival. Idols are rivals. The pagan gods of the nations are rivals to God. And God says, I don't want a rival. I want you to cling to me. And the reason I like this passage, and gentlemen, I'm specifically wanting you to get this. I don't want you to associate with these nations which remain among you. I don't want you to mention the name of their gods or make anyone swear by them, serve them, or bow down to them. Tell me, what do you think he's saying with these layers? I don't want you to worship. I don't want you to serve. I don't want you to bow down. I don't want you to mention their name. I don't even want you to hang out with nations which have rivals to me. Bottom line, I don't want you to have anything to do with anything that rivals me. That's what it means to cleave. So gentlemen, I say to you, if you're going to get married, you're going to cleave to your wife, you're going to establish an unrivaled, exclusive relationship with her. Now, we are in a culture that knows very little about fidelity, commitment, and nobility in marriage covenants. And what happens in our culture before you get married is you sow all kinds of seeds of non-commitment as if you can go down an aisle, pledge your allegiance to one person, and somehow, though you have a life of no commitment, you can suddenly become a man of commitment. Gentlemen, when you get married, you are making a promise to a woman which says, we are entering into an exclusive, unrivaled relationship. You have no competitor. My career is not a competitor. My ministry is not a competitor. My hobbies are not competitors. And no other woman on the face of the planet is a competitor with you. Where my eyes look, what my affections are toward, who I talk to, the relationships I enter into, they are all governed by this noble conviction. I'm married. There is one woman with whom I have an exclusive, unrivaled relationship, and she has no competition. I had a guy sit in my office one time. His wife was brokenhearted. She looked at me and said, he looks at every woman. We're married. And he said this to me. He said, I can read the menu as long as I don't order. I wanted to hit him. You know, right then and there as a pastor, I wanted to be something other than a pastor. And I said to him, I said, so tell me, what do you think she's feeling when she hears you say that? Do you think she's feeling like a one-of-a-kind because she is? Do you think she's feeling like the apple of your eye? Do you think she feels like God's gift to you? I promise you none of that. This is the great sting and stain and toxin of pornography. Pornography is innately competition, and it's enslaving. It doesn't create relationship. It isolates from relationship. 
One, one Christian counselor said the greatest epidemic in the Christian church today are visual graphic sexual images because they destroy the very sensors and the vulnerabilities that are designed by God in our humanity to share intimacy. And instead of creating connection, it damages the sensors given us by God for connection. Biblical sexuality recognizes that in the cleaving unity of a biblical marriage expressed in physical intimacy and soulish oneness, there is an exclusivity that is unrivaled and no image is to compete with that. I tell men all the time when you, well, I can say it to men and women. I'll say it to both of you. And I need to be through. I see the time. It's like God issues you this high-performance sports car. And you know I like cars. You saw a picture of one of them I like. Imagine you get a Ferrari when you're created by God, a, a, a capacity, finely tuned, 12 cylinders, highly designed, a work of art. And I had a YouTube video, you can see it, where somebody takes one of those sports cars designed for the track or designed for high-performance driving, and a guy takes one out through the fields of England. He drives dirt, he goes mudding with it. And you look at that imagery and I say to you, when you're outside of marriage and God's prescription with your supernatural, custom-designed, intimate sensors, you're mudding with the most complex and beautiful custom-designed instrument you will ever possess. Now, maybe that guy can go buy a new Ferrari because he's got enough money to ruin one. But I don't care how much money you have, you can't go buy another you. And when you go outside of the bounds of biblical marriage and those boundaries, you're mudding with an instrument that's designed for intimacy. It not only damages you, it, it alienates you from the very thing God created you to enjoy. I want to encourage you to a biblical construct. The most beautiful thing on the planet is custom-made women for an intentionally designed man put together in the greatest union in the world, a covenant of trust called marriage, leaving, cleaving, and uniting as one flesh. That's where intimacy is born. And it takes noble convictions to protect it. In 1984, an airliner in Spain flew into a mountain and killed all on board. When they recovered the black box, the investigators heard the voice of the pilot shouting to the instruments that were saying, pull up, pull up pull up as a warning. They heard these words, pilot to the instruments, shut up, gringo, shut up. In other words, I don't want to hear what you have to say. And what could have been a great journey with a fantastic ending became a tragic story with a bad ending because that pilot ignored the warnings that were provided for him. God has given you a conscience my goal today 
was to influence and sensitize that conscience and to create a clarity from the falconer to the falcon that says, fly this way. Don't crash, fly. Father, thank you for our time this morning. Thank you for your word. Lord, I appreciate the origins that you have communicated to us, the beauty of your solution, your provision. And it's my hope today that among these young people, they might experience all that you intended. You are not a cosmic killjoy. You're not a joy robber. You're a maximizer of passions. And our culture is promoting and a mindset that would suggest that we can do whatever we want physically. There's no soulish implications. Lord, that's not the way you designed it. I pray today you would help us to live it. And Lord, for the person here who has either been violated or failed in these ways, I pray that you would remind them that if we confess and confront our sin, you are faithful and you are just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Lord, we want to be what you designed us to be and we want to taste what you provided unrivaled for our satisfaction. To this end, I ask it for us all in Jesus' name. Amen. God bless you.